Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. words are from Psalm 63, verses 1 to 4, and you've probably sung a song to these words, so have that, have that tune running through your head as we, as we speak these words together this morning. Would you read with me? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Let's just think on those words for about five seconds, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Silently praise the Father. Oh God, we do bless your name together because your steadfast love is better than life. We join together to exalt you, to magnify your name. God, thank you for what you have taught us this week in our time in in your word. Thank you for the ways that you speak through your children as we encourage one another in our discussion groups. And God, we're just asking you to speak to us again. Would you help us to see something new from these texts of scripture? Um, as we talk for a few minutes here this morning. We give you all praise, all honor, and all glory together. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Come on in. Well, last week, Jessica helped us to see David at a real high point in his walk with the Lord. He was under great stress, and he was being chased by Saul all through the wilderness, and yet his heart was turned to the Lord in worship rather than taking wrath against the Lord's anointed. And even so, this week, he has a crisis of trust. He becomes arrogant and rebellious. And Saul, last week, he had this one little shining moment when he was cut to the heart by David's mercy to him, and he acknowledged that the Lord uh, was right in making David king, even though it was just for a very short time. But even so, this week, Saul has a crisis of trust. He becomes rebellious and arrogant. And so the verse that I've wrestled with as I've studied these chapters this week alongside you, these were words that were spoken to Saul before he was rejected as king, way back in 1 Samuel 15, 23. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. I wonder if Saul realized that his little areas of rebellious compromise would grow into a dependence on the demonic in the end. I wonder if David even considered how his arrogance and selfishness could strip him of the ones that he held very dear, his idols perhaps. Both Saul and David must decide to whom will they turn when times get tough. 
Will selfishness, rebellion, and arrogance guide them, or will they fall into the arms of their trustworthy father? What about you? Have you ever considered how arrogant and how selfish your heart can be? I want to submit that the general disposition of the human heart is to be self-centered or arrogant and opposed to authority or rebellious. Just spend a little bit of time with a two-year-old, and you will see that very, very quickly, right? Well, about eight years ago, I was confronted with my arrogant and rebellious heart in a new way. I was in seminary, and I was introduced to this painting by Rembrandt entitled The Return of the Prodigal. It depicts the story that Jesus told of a loving father in the presence of his two rebellious sons, one overtly rebellious, one covertly rebellious, enveloping the one who has fallen into his embrace. The same light is cast on both sons. One is consumed by it, and the other is still hiding in its shadows. It reminds me of the two men in our text today, David and Saul, both selfish and sinful, but one willing to receive the direction of the Father no matter what the course, and one wanting God on his terms. So we're going to compare and contrast David and Saul today in these chapters, 1 Samuel 27 to 2 Samuel 1, through this outline. We're going to look at their concurrent dilemmas, responses, and end results. And then we will circle back around to that painting and I'll tell you my story with it in the end. So let's start with the dilemma. What we have in these two chapters, and all of these chapters, are two dilemmas that are told side by side. Both men wrestling with the silence and the sovereignty of God. Did you find yourself feeling some whiplash, jumping back and forth from one story to the other? They're not told chronologically but rather as a literary study of contrast. In both cases, for both David and Saul, God is silent. So let's start with David. If you will look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, we read, And David thought to himself, One of these days I'm going to be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. David, friends, has been running from Saul for a very long time. At least 15 years has passed since he fought Goliath to this moment. He is tired, and he's weary. And God may have seemed silent to him. And David now begins to question God and his timing. In fact, many of David's psalms written during this period are like Psalm 13 when he asks, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? Have you ever felt like that? Well, Saul faced a similar dilemma. Let's fast forward to, to chapter 28, verses 3 and then 5 and 6. Now Samuel had died. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, 
the Lord did not answer him. He's frustrated with God's silence, and he's not content with the previous messages he had received from Samuel. You can just see him saying, where are you, God? Well, Proverbs 14.2 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. I think both of these men were on this destructive path. One open to redirection and one was not. Both were confronted with God's sovereignty. God has supreme authority and he gets to make the final decisions, whether we like them or not. How we respond to God's silence or God's no teaches us to listen and to follow his voice just as much is having a clear direction or an answer of yes. So let's consider how David and Saul respond to these dilemmas. Dilemmas. Both men, in different ways, take matters into their own hands. We're going to start with David. What did he do? Well, David, he waited imperfectly. Star that. Imperfectly. And yet, he was rescued by his enemies. Tired of being hunted by Saul, David tries to solve the problem in his own strength without consulting God at all. In fact, there's no mention of God in chapter 27. And in chapter 29, the only mention of God comes from Achish, the pagan king. So David flees to hide with the Philistines. And he takes 600 men and all of their wives and children and all of their stuff with him. And he buddies up to this king Achish, the king of Gath, the city where Goliath was from. And David asks for asylum for all of these people in Ziklag, which really becomes David's own little kingdom. He stays there for almost a year and a half. And from here, he goes out and he pretends to fight the inhabitants of Judah, all the while killing and raiding Israel's enemies and then lying to Achish about it. And so much so that Achish is really impressed with him, impressed with his loyalty. And so in chapter 27, verse 12, Achish says, David has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. But later, when David and Achish decide that they're going to go to battle together against Israel, Achish's men turn into skeptics. And God uses them to save David from himself. Isn't that interesting? Achish's men become very suspicious of David, refusing to let him fight with them. And so Achish just caves, and he sends David and his men back home. I hope you talked about this in your discussion groups, but what do you think would have happened if David had gone to battle with Achish? Would David have succumbed and killed his fellow Israelites, would he have met his best friend, Jonathan, on the battlefield? We don't know. But what a merciful rescue for God to save him from such a dilemma when he hadn't done anything to deserve that. Has God ever used an enemy or even a worldly situation to rescue you when your heart was really far from him? He shows us mercy in the most unusual ways at his sovereign discretion. And even so, he allows us to face the consequences of our actions. 
We see that with David. Remember, he returned to Ziklag to find it burned and looted by the Amalekites. And David's two wives and all the other wives and the children were captured. And we read in in 1 Samuel 30, verse 4, this very sad scene that David and the people who are with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Can you imagine the wailing? In fact, these men were so distraught over their losses that they just decide to blame David. And they consider stoning him for allowing their wives and children to be taken. David, we know he feels pain deeply. And he feels this very deeply. So what happens in verse 6? Completely overwhelmed, David strengthened himself in the Lord God. How do you think David did that? We don't get any details. We just get that one sentence. I think he must have gone back to what worked for him in the past. He strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. How had he leaned on his God back in the sheep fields? How had he leaned on God during all of those wilderness wanderings when Saul was chasing him? Well, I think he meditated on God's goodness. He remembered his faithfulness, and he leaned into those poems and songs that flowed from his mind and from his heart in worship. So I want to ask you, what is your go-to response to lean into God when you are totally overwhelmed? How do you switch from a heart of wrath to a heart of worship? Maybe it's listening to worship music and singing along at the top of your lungs. Maybe it's finding a beautiful place in nature to return to, to sit, and to reflect. Or maybe it's a posture that you assume in prayer to really change your heart and put you into a a mode of repentance. I don't know what it is for you, but I do know that for it to become a go-to for you, you're going to have to practice it consistently and regularly. Well, finally... David knows what he must do. He needs to ask God. So his worship flowed into communication, into prayer with God. So David inquires of the Lord via the priest and the ephod. And then very importantly, he paid attention to what happened next. He was able to hear God because he knew him personally. God told him to pursue I don't know how he told him, but David got the message, and he took his 600 men, and they moved forward. Even when 200 men stayed back in exhaustion, God sent another unlikely enemy turned savior to David. Remember that Egyptian servant of one of the Amalekites? He ushered David and his men right to their unsuspecting enemies. David moved forward in victory retrieving his wives and the spoils that had been taken from him in Ziklag. Well, we see a very different story, a very different response from Saul in chapter 28, verses 3 to 25. First thing I saw is that Saul kept religious practices without really knowing God. We saw him back in chapter 13 attempting to make the proper sacrifices, but getting ahead of God 
and then attempting to repent in order to save face with the people. In chapter 15, these all seemed good and right, but he never seemed to, try to find his true satisfaction in God. He didn't really know the heart of God, so his sin never really produced in him a godly sorrow that takes place when you realize that you have grieved God's heart. Instead, Saul experienced worldly sorrow for getting caught time and again. So in chapter 28, verse 3, we see him. We learn that he had um, put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. This was a really good thing to do. It was right. It was in accordance with the law in Deuteronomy 18. But he never really seemed to understand why. He just did it. And then in chapter 28, verse 6, it says that Saul inquired of the Lord in dream from the priests and from the prophets of the land. These were all the right things to do. But he doesn't know God well enough to discern the answer. He refuses to accept God's silent no. This reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, when, when Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons, or in this case, mediums and necromancers in your name, and, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Had Saul known God, perhaps he could have received the words of Samuel from before. And then now the silence of God is his answer. His kingdom was being removed from him. But not his position as a child of God. He was an Israelite. He was a Benjamin, Benjaminite. He was important. He was part of God's people. But instead, in fear and desperation, he sent for the very medium that he had put out. In verse 3, he called a witch to summon Samuel. Isn't it ironic, I thought this was funny, that a fearful man would conjure up the dead to make him less afraid? Sounds really, really scary to me. And these are not forces to be messed with for all of us. I know that because his fear only intensifies when a dead Samuel actually appears, confirming the prophetic words that he had spoken when he was alive. Look at chapter 28, verse 18. Samuel, this dead Samuel, says to him, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath on Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you today. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. So instead of strengthening himself in the Lord, Saul strengthened himself with the food of a witch, contemplating the deaths of his sons and himself that will most surely occur the next day. I find it so sad that Saul's feet stayed stuck in fear rather than moving forward in victory like David did. 
And maybe you think that this could never happen to you. But I want to ask you, when has God told you no or been silent on an issue and you just refuse to accept that answer? Let's learn from Saul. Don't, don't allow rebellion and arrogance to lead you into misguided spiritual pursuits. Well, now let's consider the end result. We're going to turn the tables this time, and we're going to start with Saul, and then we'll end with David, both of them pointing us very uniquely to Jesus. So first of all, tragically, Saul died the death every prideful sinner deserves. In his pride, Saul would rather fall on his own sword than turn to the Lord to receive his forgiveness. He died a brutal death, along with his three sons, armor-bearer, and all his men at the hand of the Philistines. In a really gruesome display of power and retribution, Saul's head is cut off, and his armor displayed in the temple of Ashtoreth, Philistine god. And the bodies of Saul and his sons are fastened to the wall of Bethshan, humiliated, displayed in shame, before they are finally rescued and buried. Ironically, it was in within eyeshot of Saul's dangling body in Bethshan where Samuel had proclaimed to him in 1 Samuel 10, verse 1, You, Saul, shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So it's in the very place that those glorious promises had been given where Saul's lifeless carcass hangs, defeated, and finally forsaken by God. Well, David, on the other hand, received undeserved grace from God. He received back his wives and the wives and the children of his men, as well as all the spoils from the Amalekites. We see in chapter 30 that he begins to reign as God's king, showing mercy and justice even before he's formally anointed in 2 Samuel chapter 2. I want to just highlight some of the things that he did. They're pretty remarkable. First, in uh, verse 23 of chapter 30, David acknowledged God's generosity and the provision of the spoils that God had given. And then he turned that generosity and mercy back to the 200 men who had stopped by the wayside and didn't go fight. Even when all the other men thought they didn't deserve any of the spoils, David showed them kindness and mercy and overflow of what he had received from God. But then later, when David is told of Saul and Jonathan's deaths, David enacted justice by executing the Amalekite who had lied, who had claimed to have struck down the Lord's anointed. So we see David's glimpse of what God's king looks like in enacting mercy and justice. And then finally, uh, David wept and mourned and fasted over the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, and he led the people in lament. We saw that in 2 Samuel 1, 17 to the end of the chapter. David shows us how appropriate and necessary it is 
to grieve and mourn the loss of those we love. David loved Jonathan, remember, as his own soul. And despite Saul's jealousy, David had loved him too and respected him as the Lord's anointed. So David turns back to his go-to, to poetry. He writes a poem, a lament, as a way to express his grief. And then he commands everyone to memorize and sing this song along with him. I thought it was particularly poignant, uh, the words in verses 23 and 25 of 2 Samuel 1. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. David grieves corporately over the loss of his beloved friends. and teaches us how important that is in the family of God, to grieve together. Well, both Saul and David uniquely point us to Jesus. Like David, Jesus found strength in the Lord. When his friends accompanied him to the Garden of Gethsemane to watch and to wait, remember he inquired of God and listened to his voice, begging, Father, if it is at all possible, please let this cup pass from me. His desperation, to the point of sweating blood, he leaned into the heart of the Father and he trusted him completely. He concluded, not as I will, but as you will. And so Jesus died a rebellious and arrogant sinner's death. He died Saul's death falling on his sword willingly because that was what our selfish failure deserved. He was cut off, bearing all of of humanity's humiliation and shame, hanging naked on a tree. But like David, he reigns victorious over death, rising in three days, ascending to the Father, and then unleashing his spirit on all of us who would trust him together. So I want you to see what I think is the most important climax of the book of Samuel right here in the text. Jesus was killed like Saul so he could reign like David. Before David could sit on the throne, Saul had to die. And the same is true for us. Before Jesus can sit on the throne of your heart, your sinful flesh, has to die. In fact, you have to acknowledge and mourn the rebellion and the arrogance of your own life. We desperately need a Savior who can remove the spirit of Saul that is lodged in every heart. Until God deals with the sin that's within us, no government, however savvy, resourceful, or beneficent, will bring peace to our broken world. And friends, all of you, all of you has to die so that your life can become hidden with Christ in God. Resting in Christ's righteousness together will yield lasting peace, the kind of peace that will enable us to be utterly content in God's presence and his holiness forever. So now I want us to turn our attention back to this 
picture, this image painted in 1668 that really blows my mind. Um, And I want to tell you some of the things that were revealed to me as I looked at this picture and thought about our text this week. I want you to notice how your eyes follow the light in this picture. Everybody just look at it, one of these screens, because I'm talking. How your eyes follow the light from top to bottom. First, you land on the Father. Look at his hands. His right hand is soft and nurturing. It's more feminine in nature. His left hand is strong and protective, more masculine in nature. A beautiful picture of the overwhelming love of God. Next, your eyes come down on the younger son. You see his bald head. He's filthy. He's scantily dressed. Go all the way down to his feet. Notice how one foot is bare, showing his nakedness and vulnerability. But the other foot has a shoe on. It's ready to move forward in forgiveness and love. And finally, you notice the light on the elder brother's face, but his feet are totally in the dark. So I think Saul was like the elder brother. On the outside, he looked pretty put together. He looked the part. He did, and he said the right things. But on the inside, he was selfish and cold. Even the good things he did were to look good and to earn the favor of the people. His heart was restless and unsatisfied in God alone. But I think David was like the younger brother. David was selfish and impetuous, yet he was willing to turn to his father to find satisfaction in his embrace. David cultivated a heart of worship, not to impress God, but because he was so impressed by God's generosity and forgiveness and love. Well, that day back in seminary when we were discussing this this painting, I identified with that older brother in a way that really cut me to the core. I want you to look at him again in the picture. Even though he's bathed in light, he refuses to look at his father and his brother. He's looking past that tender, loving, compassionate embrace. His hands are folded in his fancy robes, but his feet are completely in the dark. He doesn't want to move. He's stuck. And in this moment, I think it was like he was saying, Dad, don't waste my inheritance on that sinful brother with this extravagant display. If you're going to do that, It would be better if you were dead so that I could get what is rightfully mine now. The very thing that the younger son had done earlier in the story. And that that just cut me, cut me to the core. See, that day I realized that even the good things that I did were often self-centered, expecting something from God. Did I relish the presence of the Father more than what I could get for him? I was in a season of really defending myself and my actions to any and everyone. I thought what I was doing was godly and I was fighting for myself, but it was a selfish arrogance. 
So I was so moved looking at the picture, seeing the image of those hands embracing the sun, and I just fell into the, to that kind of embrace in a new way that day, moved by the love of the Father for me, a rebellious sinner. And really receiving that love and mercy and forgiveness from this posture of humility freed me up to see people and situations in my life in a totally new way. I was able to start loving without expecting a lot in return because I had received all that I would ever need and that embrace of the Father. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make with this text of, strip, of Scripture is to minimize the rebellious arrogance of David and to try to justify his pride. His pride and his arrogance were clear in these texts, and they will continue to show their ugly head again and again in 2 Samuel. David points us to Christ as a sinner in need of a Savior, just like us. And so instead of being frustrated with his behaviors in the weeks to come, like I used to be, I hope that you can see him, and I hope you can see yourself in this bald, battered, vulnerable son, moving forward in the forgiveness of the true king. God, we love you. We thank you for what you show us in your word. We thank you for the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace that you poured out on David, the mercy and grace and love that you have poured out on us in Christ. And God, we want to receive that in a new way today. Would you help us to do that? Would you help us to receive your embrace and to move forward together in victory, confidently together as your people? We love you and thank you in Jesus' name.